Hi everyone, I'm Tina. And I'm Roshni. Welcome to the Behind Your Behavior podcast, where we explore patterns in human behavior and the reasonings behind them. Hey everyone, welcome to the Behind Your Behavior podcast. I'm Roshni and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, John Freeman, who's going to be talking about split-second perception. Dr. John Freeman is an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University and director of the Social Cognitive and Neurosciences Lab. He received his PhD from Tufts University and was on the faculty at Dartmouth before coming to NYU in 2014. His research focuses on how we perceive other people, such as how we categorize others in his social groups, infer their emotion or personality via facial cues, and more generally, how we understand and react to our social world. His work examines the cognitive and neural mechanisms underlying person perception, stereotyping, and decision-making in social contexts. He takes an integrative, multi-level approach that makes use of several techniques, including functional neuroimaging, computational modeling, and behavioral paradigms. He's also the developer of the data collection and analysis software, Mouse Tracker. Dr. Freeman, welcome to the BYB podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to record this episode with you today. I took your class actually as an undergrad at NYU on social neuroscience. I remember. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, great class. And <laughs> uh, to start off, I would love to ask you what got you interested in social neuroscience kind of in general? Yeah, uh, well, social neuroscience, I got interested in in undergrad. Um, I was taking courses in cognitive neuroscience at the time, and it uh, really opened my eyes to what is possible with functional neuroimaging. Uh, And at the same time, I was getting into some social psychological topics um, and things like person perception, split second judgments of other people. And especially living in New York City, where you're, you know, running around and encounter dozens, if not hundreds of people, just a couple seconds. And I just became really fascinated by all the kinds of inferences that we make in these split second moments. And with um, taking some cognitive neuroscience courses and saw what you could do with that, I got really fascinated by that. And so got involved in uh, a number of labs in undergrad and then uh, got started in social neuroscience. Yeah, that's so interesting. I don't know if I ever actually told you this, but like when I was writing my, um, application for like undergrad, I wrote it on this book called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. That's like all about split second decisions. And like, that's what got me interested in studying decision making. And like, now I want to study it in like this other sense. But like, that really was what got me interested in as well was that we make these like split second decisions. And I wrote my entire like, undergrad college application on um, that book, which is like, I didn't know that. Yeah, that actually my PhD advisor, Nalini Ambadi, was written up pr- pretty extensively in Blink in terms of she, with her grad advisor, uh, Bob Rosenthal in the 90s, invented yeah. thin slice judgments or thin yeah, slicing yeah. from brief observations of nonverbal behavior and the surprising accuracy that we can glean from that. And so it's that, you know, that I, I'm sort of bringing kind of the neuroscience to some of that and, and looking at other topics. But um, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, I think. Yeah, no, it's, it's such an interesting, like, concept that, you know, these split second decisions are made, like, especially in this social sense. Mm -hmm. And 
I love the ways that your lab has studied it. And you've specifically built the software that kind of um, untangles, you know, what's what's behind these decisions and like the biases that are kind of behind that decision. And it's a software called Mouse Tracker. It's super famous. I'm sure our, a lot of our listeners have heard about it. <laughs> I don't um, know if it's that famous, but... Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Um, but if you could, yeah, tell our listeners a little bit about it and what can you actually study using Mouse Tracker? Uh, sure, yeah. So uh, the computer mouse tracking technique is something that I've spent uh, a bit of time working on ever since I actually started working on an undergrad and then really developed the software in grad school. Um, and the idea is that uh, rather than looking at people's conscious explicit response, you can measure, you know, the real-time process leading up to that, that response. And so this is a, a question sort of fundamentally that has sort of plagued cognitive scientists for a very long time. So even going back to, you know, in the 1800s when the reaction time was invented, right, or first measured to uh, try to separate hypothetically distinct cognitive processes by Donders, what's called mental chronometry or trying to measure the timing of processes and kind of get into the sub-processes within a, a response is something that has been of interest for a very long time. And, and so this really um, can open up a single reaction time or an explicit conscious response into this continuous stream of rich cognitive output. So one big use of that, which is relevant to what we're talking about today, relevant to, to my lab's work, is sort of relatively uh, unconscious or more implicit or less conscious um, kinds of processes, things like stereotypes uh, or other kinds of biases that enter in on a certain kind of response or a, um, a perception. But this could also be how do people make trade-offs between, say, their initial impulse or temptation for, say, an unappetite or sorry, an appetizing food cue versus something a healthier option that they want to regulate themselves to eat. Right. So how do we make these different kinds of trade-offs or how do people make financial decisions or um, it has use cases in things like advertising or marketing and has use cases in terms of memory or language research, anything where you're trying to understand how a, a response, say over hundreds of milliseconds evolves and stabilizes, this is a technique that it can help shed light on that. Right. And there's so much that you can, like you were just mentioning, there's so much you can really infer from that data. And, you know, what are some of the biggest discoveries you have come up with from that data, specifically like things you have seen in the lab or just like anecdotally? From mouse tracking in particular? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would say, you know, something that we've been spending a bit of time on is, is to what extent in very initial moments of perception when we're catching sight of someone's face, for example, or catching sight of another person, um, how do the stereotypes that we've ac acquired from our culture, how do those uh, impact that initial perception? And so something that's been surprising, uh, but we've now replicated a number of times, is that these sorts of you know, stereotypes, whether it's that Black individuals are hostile, um, a, a stereotype in the United States, or women are sort of appeasing or relatively more submissive, or... Um, certain stereotypes or biases against sexual minorities um, or any kind of prior knowledge that that is really impacting and, and creating these um, sort of fleeting changes in an initial perception. Um, 
you know, one of the things, just to give you one example, is that, for example, you know, individuals when uh, when presented with stereotypically low status attire, so janitor attire, for example, people will have a tendency or an attraction to select the black category response before selecting the white category response if a face is bearing low status attire because of, unfortunately, people's implicit stereotypes linking black individuals to low status and white individuals to high status in US. Another example is that we could predict, this was in 2014, but looking at senator and governor uh, electoral candidates in the US, male and female politicians from 1998 to 2010, what we found was that female politicians that were judged to be a little bit more masculine as early as 380 milliseconds after people were exposed to her face predicted her electoral failure. So those female politicians that had slightly more masculine features were judged a little bit more masculine and activated the male category representation in the brain um, had a decreased chance of electoral success. And that was particularly the case in U.S. conservative states. So those female politicians running in conservative constituencies. And these effects held even when statistically controlling for uh, perceived attractiveness and perceived competence of the faces. And we've known for many years now that politicians that look more attractive or look more competent, male or female, tend to do better. And we saw that in these data as well. But critically, exclusively for female politicians, what these data suggests is that there's sort of an additional barrier female politicians, especially those running in conservative constituencies, have to face in terms of they need to appear not only attractive and competent, but also retain this tie to traditional femininity at the level of their facial appearance, even when trying to negotiate that with looking competent in a male-dominated leadership environment. So it creates these additional barriers for women. And th this was observed using mouse tracking as early as 380 milliseconds after people were exposed to female politicians' faces. So these things are, on the one hand, surprising. On the other hand, uh, not you know, not so much and, and predicted from the kinds of things we've been arguing for a while. Yeah, that is such important data to have, especially because implicit bias, like you, like in the name is implicit. And so I think sometimes in society, it can be hidden and not talked about enough. And to have data that really brings it to everyone's, um, to the front of everyone's mind so that it can be part of a conversation is really, really important. And like you were mentioning, like women, face these implicit biases and um, so do uh, minorities of all of all statuses. And it's uh, it's really important to talk about um, specifically, I, I mean, I'm in medicine, so we talk about it all the time that we should address our implicit biases, that we shouldn't pretend that they don't exist because you have to acknowledge it to move forward or to at least do something about it. And so I, I think that's really great that you have so much data there. Yeah, th uh, thanks. And I think one, because there are a number of uh, implicit bias measures that you can use, um, and, and often they involve reaction times, for example, or there's other kinds of measures. But one of the nice uh, advantages, and I think there's a number of advantages, also limitations to mouse tracking and to the software, is that it is extremely visual and straightforward. And so for for members of the general public, when you visualize essentially their bias, you show them their hand trajectory, their very fast hand movement and route to a response. And you show that, for example, they tended very subtly, a couple millimeters of movement tended to gravitate partially towards 
a stereotypically associated response, like the black category for a person depicted with low status attire, that is helpful to raise their awareness and to hopefully increase their concern and motivation to try to regulate their bias um, when they can really see it in their own hand motion, even for an implicit measure. So different than something like reaction times, where it's a little bit harder for people to really have a concrete understanding of what they've just done. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the strongest things about Mouse Tracker is that it has that visual aspect that you aren't just saying that like, yeah, it took you a little bit longer, but like, this is your actual trajectory, like your mouse gravitated towards the other answer, even if you didn't consciously do that, like, or, or weren't do that on purpose. And it's also aggregated across all these trials to be like, it's not just like, once your hand like, you know, went the wrong way by accident, but across all these trials, you have this slight deviation towards the other answer. So Mm. seeing that visually is very important in addressing that bias and, and, you know, making people aware so then they can actively work against it. Mm -hmm. And kind of going off of that, what are some of the other ways that you would say we can kind of as a society or as an individual work actively work against these stereotypes and biases that we may have implicitly? Yeah, so that that's a great question. Um, the, you know, in social psychology, there's been a long history of bias intervention studies and trying to typically in the lab, uh, reduce people's uh, implicit stereotypes or their implicit attitudes. And so we've known for a, a very long time that people certainly have unconscious bias, implicit bias. That's already known how to intervene on it. And uh, a few years ago, there were large sample studies finding that a lot of these lab-based interventions, which are single shot, this is one instance in the lab that we thought were effective in, uh, in reducing implicit bias, actually in the long run, if you measure it three to four days later, don't have any effectiveness in terms of reducing bias. And so this led a number of researchers to try to come up with new, more substantive techniques to reduce bias. And really the the one approach that seems to be um, successful, and this is ongoing research, is thinking about uh, implicit bias as a habit that we can break. And, and the upshot of this work is that, you know, it, if you can, you know, if people are aware of their bias, if they're motivated and concerned about their bias, and if they make meaningful effort to change the bias, then you can see through these multi-week interventions of training people to use certain techniques, you can see successful reduction in the long run of implicit bias. And a couple examples include um, counter what's called counter-stereotype uh, exemplars in terms of actively thinking about individuals of a racial outgroup, for example, or some kind of minority group that counter their stereotypes. Another example is, uh, or technique is individuation, where you intentionally think of someone as an individual member of, or an individual person, a human, rather than a member of the group. Uh, Another is perspective taking, where you put yourself in someone else's shoes, a member of, say, a racial outgroup, and you put yourself in their shoes. And uh, another includes creating opportunities for meaningful contact with uh, outgroup members. In these in multi-week interventions have shown promising results. And this is pretty recent work, um, but this is really the direction that I, you know, bias intervention really needs to go in these more substantial kinds of interventions 
that are training subjects. But it all comes down to if you are aware, motivated, and can exert effort through these strategies, it does look like it does look promising. Um, I think the challenge will be for researchers to, as they're doing now, to try to incorporate these insights into programs that can be used by organizations, by police departments, et cetera. Um, however, one thing I'll just mention that's you know a little bit more tailored to our own work is that something that you know our lab has been showing repeatedly, as I mentioned earlier, is that these this unconscious bias exists, but it also seems to be having essentially collateral damage on the visual system. It seems that you know if you have an implicit stereotype that black individuals are hostile, for example, or these associations with crime, it might cause the visual system to misperceive an innocuous object as a weapon, for example, or cause a black face to look angrier than it is, or a female face to look more appeasing and submissive than it is. And if it's existing at a visual level in levels of representation in the visual system, which is something we're continually uh, you know, providing evidence for, then that might suggest other kinds of techniques that we need to think about in these intervention paradigms. And that's something my lab is thinking about um, because otherwise we go out into the world and essentially we're having a kind of visual confirmation bias where what our stereotypes are sort of dictating expectations. And because of these biases, it's actually manifesting in visual reality. And that's going to just confirm and, and sort of further entrench those already existing stereotypes. And so I do think that appreciating the visual components to this and, and how this plays out in other aspects in the brain's processing how we initially perceive other people is really critical to uh, supplement these intervention strategies. Yeah. And I think this research is so important at a time like this. And I mean, it's always important, but especially at, at a time like this, where, you know, we're seeing this entire um, like social revolution happening and um, having these ideas in mind to be like, these are the things that we can do to, like what Tina was saying, we, we're not going to ignore it. We have to be very aware that these biases exist and we have to actively work to be like, these are the ways that we can work against it and identify it in the first place. So I think mm -hmm. this, this research is very important. And I wanted to kind of dig into what you were saying about these kind of top-down effects that affect the way we are viewing other people in a very visual sense, because that's the primary way that we interact with other human beings is you know, this initial visual cue, these initial visual, visual cues that we get. Mm -hmm. um, so based on your research, what have we learned about the way we categorize others based on these visual cues or facial cues? Yeah. So this is a, a topic that has sort of historically been relatively neglected in, in social psychology in terms of the initial moments of perception. And what we've learned in my lab for a while now is that there's enormous complexity to this process. There's a lot that goes on in these initial fractions of a second. So it's not just a sort of, okay, we initially see someone, we categorize them in a certain way, and then all these things like stereotyping and prejudice can be enacted or interaction. There's a lot that happens in those, you know, in those, in those fractions of a second. Um, and among those is that there seems to be a strong integration of not only the many different facial features uh, and cues that are available, um, but also the, but also the the kind of top down factors 
that play a role. So what we bring to the table as perceivers in terms of our stereotypes, in terms of our expectations, our prior knowledge about an individual or a group, our tacit assumptions about uh, how personality structure works or how emotions uh, uh, work or the, our conceptual understanding of them all can impact the initial moments of perception and essentially change, uh, at least for a couple hundred milliseconds, how we're initially perceiving a person's face. And we're increasingly trying to understand the lingering consequences of those subtle biases uh, that happen in those initial moments. So that's one thing. Another is that the brain is exquisitely sensitive to the information. We've shown in some studies that, for example, personality traits like trustworthiness uh, can be processed by certain regions in the brain, uh, even when uh, people are not consciously aware of even seeing a face. So certain regions of the brain, like the amygdala, are sensitive to facial trustworthiness information, uh, even you know before conscious awareness of a face is even available. And so this really suggests, as other work has, that you know we are evolutionarily shaped to be processing all sorts of information on people's faces. We have this exquisite ability to do so. Um, however, it's not a simple kind of quick and dirty process of just what is the information on a face. We don't just read visible facial cues like we're reading text from a book. We're really bringing a lot to the table, all of our tacit assumptions about personality, about emotions, about stereotypes, about social groups, about prejudice. Uh, and these things can have an effect in these initial moments of perception. Yeah, I think what I've learned so far in medical school is that everything, every decision is incredibly complex. I mean, like you were mentioning, there's clearly an evolutionary reason or at least evidence of that for why our brain is able to make these uh, instant judgments. And I thought what you were mentioning before about the ability for it to even impact our visual system is very telling and, you know, very, very interesting. I mean, you can just imagine how that can impact our world how we think it it already is like impacting our world mm -hmm. um and i mean we've touched about on so many important things here and I, I know you mentioned that the amygdala you've seen that involved in implicit judgments or perceptions um what other brain regions have you have you studied that are involved in things like this yeah so we uh We've really been focusing on uh, the, an interplay between three brain regions and creating a lot of these, um, of this kind of flexible effects of what you could call social cognition on visual perception or what we've just been talking about, how what we bring to the table as perceivers can influence what's going on in the visual system in our initial moments of perception. And those include the uh, the fusiform gyrus, which in, which contains the fusiform face area. So it's a region that's centrally involved in face perception and really the uh, important region for representing another person's information on their face. Uh, and we believe that that uh, interacts with the interior temporal lobe, the ATL, which is involved broadly in a variety of semantic processes. There might be portions of the ATL that are selectively involved in social semantic knowledge. So this is a region that will automatically access in response to another person, uh, stereotypes or prior learned knowledge about the person, 
uh, information, right? So this is kind of a, you can think about it like a filing cabinet of information that we automatically access and, and retrieve that information, not necessarily in any kind of conscious manner. And then finally, the orbitofrontal cortex, the OFC. And the OFC, we believe, uh, sends signals uh, to the fusiform gyrus based on the current context and expectations. So it's as if, you know, this region sends signals to ventral temporal cortex and to perceptual brain regions uh, in object recognition uh, in a very adaptive way. So for example, if we're walking into a restaurant, we're not expecting to see an elephant or some giraffe or something like that, right? We're expecting to see chairs and tables and the sorts of things. And if you really think about your visual perception, it's not that you take every single pixel and you're actually processing, right? Every single pixel in the environment, every object, you kind of run with certain hypotheses and go with it, right? The brain doesn't have the kind of resources to process everything in that intensive of a way. And what happens in object recognition is that the orbitofrontal cortex kind of sends that kind of top-down knowledge and expectation signals to ventral temporal cortex to help constrain the possible things that it might be seeing, right? So you don't have to literally process everything in a restaurant. You have these hypotheses and you run with them. Well, the same thing seems to be going on, what our work suggests, with social perception, where we have these kind of chronic expectations, in this case, based on stereotypes or prior knowledge, and these things are, are maybe sent from the orbitofrontal cortex to perceptual brain regions for processing faces like the fusiform gyrus or the fusiform face area, which is usually something that you might say is evolutionarily adaptive. It saves the brain time, right? Categorization is a helpful process to streamline an impossibly complex world. But in the case of social perception, you're using prior knowledge to constrain visual perception in a way that's creating biases, right? So if you've acquired from your culture certain associations, you know, when it's about restaurants and what you might expect when you see a restaurant, that's great and adaptive. When it's, you know, expectations that you might implicitly have about Black individuals or about women or about uh, sexual minorities, these things, right, can, creep, can be what we would call maladaptive or create a lot of issues. Uh, and, and this is one of the issues in trying to think of how to intervene on these biases, because this is what it seems to be what we're finding is a domain general kind of uh, effect where the kinds of brain regions and mechanisms that we're finding to underlie what you could call these stereotypic vision effects, these effects of stereotypes on vision, uh, are ones that adaptively do this for object recognition and for general categorization in the brain. So it's not it makes it more difficult to try to intervene on this because these are mechanisms that are usually very helpful, but they're going, they're being co-opted for purposes that we, you know, are, are, are maladaptive and we certainly as a society deem problematic. Yeah, absolutely. But there's so, as you're saying, there's so many other factors that you have to take into account, like the way someone grew up, their cultures, stereotypes, and all these things that are part of, their life and the society around them, that it is supposed to be this evolutionarily adaptive thing that's, you know, benefiting us in the long run. But because of all these societal effects, it, it can turn maladaptive. And then it's, it's very difficult to intervene, you know, at mm -hmm. that point, because it's like, how do you change all of society? And I think that's kind of this problem that it's like, this is a systemic issue, you know, that's what is, is the key part of it is that 
it's not something that you can just go to one person and and like target and be like go through this like certain type of therapy like you can't really build something like a cbt for these biases because it's not really like it it is part of the way we perceive everything around us and you know categorize not only just people but like and as you're saying like these brain regions are like the ofc is used is been implicated in like valuation of decisions and when you're deciding between two objects or two choices which one gives you kind of more of a like has more value to you or like kind of gives you more of a dopamine burst Mm -hmm. um and it's interesting to think that that's also involved in you know social perception and it it is so ingrained in a person and and how we like you know categorize everything around us Mm -hmm. yeah and, and something that i think is important to think about there is you know, I think certainly, you know, researchers, probably people, you know, the general public understands evolutionarily, there might be, you know, mechanisms for tribalism in the sense of for group distinctions. You know, most researchers would say the content of those group distinctions can is very malleable, right? So of course, we only learn from our culture and our social environment, the associations, gender associations, racial associations, uh, you know, associations about any kind of social group. Um, we might have as humans certain propensities for group distinctions and for categorization, but what what those groups are, what they mean, and certainly the stereotypes and attitudes related to them is something that's quite malleable. But so, and so, even though there's this evolutionary evolutionary backdrop, you know, we've been spending researchers have been spending a lot of time on interventions to reduce or you know, possible eliminate these associations, but something that, you know, currently is still thought of as kind of evolutionarily maybe fixed and something that we've started thinking about in the lab is interventions to reduce more general kinds of snap judgments about people's faces. So we know people make these elaborate judgment, personality judgments about people's faces. So if you put aside race and gender and these and, and sort of social categories, uh, across the board, although there's plenty of intersections too, but across the board, people without awareness make inferences about how trustworthy a person's face looks, how competent a person's face looks, how dominant, how uh, you know likable. These things matter for hiring. They, they buy us a variety of business decisions, hiring decisions, legal decisions. They predict company profits of a CEO. They predict all these things in different domains. They predict criminal sentencing decisions, including capital punishment. It's really remarkable. And researchers have generally kind of resigned themselves a little bit to, you know, we're evolutionarily designed to judge a book by its cover. This is kind of what's called an overgeneralization of responding to emotion cues in a face. And, and when you look at the actual features, that's pretty clear. But there haven't really, the, the way that there have been attempts to intervene, and rightfully so, obviously, on racial bias and on gender bias, has been really absent in terms of, is there a way that we could intervene on kind of eradicating or at least reducing snap judgments of people's faces that seem to predict criminal sentencing decisions and, and legal decisions and hiring decisions, even putting aside race and gender? And we've started to find some evidence that indeed it is possible to use the same kinds of intervention strategies in the racial bias and gender bias literature. So things like counter stereotype training to actually get people to stop automatically using trustworthy information or competent information from people's faces. Because something that I think has been ignored and I hope sees more attention is that there are so many 
uh, hiring biases and legal biases and biases in the judicial system, et cetera, that are unfolding sort of without our awareness based on just facial appearance and the way that people tend to look. And I do think it's time, even if we are have this strong evolutionary kind of predilection to be judging this information, I still think we should try to think of this as flexible and research should really be focusing on intervening on this. And that's something we're starting to do now. But I think that should really be added to how people think about these kinds of uh, biases that are occurring. Yeah, that that's so important, especially what you were saying about biases in hiring and things like that. I'm uh, I'm currently applying for residency, and one interesting article I saw were was on gender differences in um, letters of recommendation. That like you could tell like there were certain words that tended to be more associated with females versus males. It's just like so crazy how much data we have about these implicit biases and how just, you know, talking about them and sharing this data can maybe really impact how people uh, act in the future. And the whole point is that we're seeing that these implicit biases, like you were saying, it all depends on the social construct. And in our society, these biases are, you know, doing much more harm than the evolutionary good that they're supposed to be doing. Um, so I I really think that, you know, we, we've talked about it a lot on this episode, but I, I think that the, the science here can really impact, like you were saying, our social initiatives and make a big change. And that's what we all hope for. Yeah. And I think the, you know, things like uh, what's called the attractiveness halo effect or that attractive faces, you know, people with attractive faces do better in all sorts of domain in life uh, or you know, people, as I was mentioning earlier with politicians, male and female politicians with more competent looking faces and more attractive looking faces are more likely to be elected. We know these things occur, but an interesting distinction from racial bias or gender bias and how those are studied and interventions developed to reduce or eliminate those is that we sort of say, you know, in terms of we, we judge faces as attractive or we judge faces as competent and that we should just kind of be okay with that and you know, I think a lot of liberal minded egalitarian individuals who wish to be non-prejudicial with respect to gender bias and racial bias may not be aware of the extent to which they're using all sorts of facial features in a hiring context or as a jury member making a decision about criminal sentencing, including capital punishment, and how something like facial trustworthiness, regardless of race or gender, is affecting their decision making. And people, I think, unlike racial or gender bias, feel sort of with conviction that that's an appropriate use of cues, even though from plenty of evidence, we know that these things don't portend any actual behavior in terms of the personality. So these, these traits don't have any kind of reliable correspondence in terms of what we're perceiving on people's faces to real behavior. So people that look more trustworthy are not actually more trustworthy, generally speaking. Yet people with untrustworthy faces are more likely to be sentenced to death harsher criminal sentences, less likely to be hired. So we need to figure out a way to intervene on that. The difficulty with that is not only there's a a strong evolutionary backdrop and strong predilection to obviously use these facial features because we evolved to have these mechanisms from nonverbal communication, from perceiving emotion. And so we're left with these kinds of mechanisms, but also because people generally feel okay 
and like it's a reasonable use of information, right? That people uh, don't feel, unlike gender or racial bias, they feel that this is something that is uh, okay. So that's something that hopefully, as as you know, as the couple years go by, we'll see increasing research on this. And certainly, my lab is spending quite a bit of time uh, looking at this and, and starting to develop interventions for this. So we'll see how far interventions can go. They might not be able to go far, but hopefully, they can. Definitely. Well, it's it's great to hear, you know, that your lab is already looking into this. And um, I think that brings us to our next question, which is, you know, what are some of your lab's current research initiatives and what are you, what kind of methodologies are you using to study those? Yeah. So one of them is what we we're just talking about is, is starting to take intervention work that's typical of racial bias and gender bias and bring it over to just personality impressions from people's faces, which essentially you can call facial stereotyping, right? It's kind of stereotyping on the basis of facial appearance. Um, other, you know, in terms of techniques, we have been increasingly using what's called uh, multivariate uh, neuroimaging. And all that means is, is essentially using kind of pattern recognition techniques uh, or machine learning on brain imaging data to look inside particular brain regions like the ones we just talked about in terms of the fusiform gyrus or the fusiform face area, which is representing faces or the orbitofrontal cortex or the anterior temporal lobe. And rather than just infer that these brain regions are activated when people are initially perceiving faces or using prior knowledge to inform their perceptions, how the information is getting represented, how the information is getting distorted. So really using these techniques to understand better how you know, actually see and even potentially visualize the biased representation of a face. So if you have an expectation or a stereotype that um, black individuals are hostile, for example, or women are appeasing, how can we decode from face processing brain regions what that actually looks like? And we've, we've been doing this over the past couple of years in linking those effects to individual differences in people's stereotypes. And this is something that I think, you know, ultimately gets to fundament. It's it has a essentially a an applied or practical value in all the things we've just been talking about in terms of how can we reduce or eliminate stereotyping and the collateral damage these processes have, unconscious bias has on visual processes and perception and other aspects of behavior, but also gets at fundamental questions uh, in terms of how does the brain represent information about people's faces or how does it represent information about the external social world and that's something that at a very broad level my lab is becoming increasingly uh, interested in and so we're, we're doing a number of studies kind of focusing on that and we link these effects with these you know decoding techniques from brain imaging data with mouse tracking data for example to get it you know, these, not what people consciously or explicitly say, but the sort of en route to that response over hundreds of milliseconds, how they got there, linking all these things together to understand in those split second moments, how are multiple processes in the brain converging uh, and coming together to crystallize these perceptions in the role that bias plays and uh, other factors. So that's something that at a very broad level, we're doing a lot of different um, studies on. Those are fascinating research initiatives. And I think specifically using um, MVPA, as you mentioned, I think that's a great technique to do exactly what your goal is, you know, to get into the intric intricacies behind these decisions and understand, like, 
actually the patterns behind each of these um, brain, you know, these states when you're like seeing someone else's face, what, what is that actually going on in your brain when you see a face that looks slightly more feminine versus slightly more masculine or um, has some connotation of being, having some racial bias and mm. understanding, you know, not only just how's your brain at a broader level, like what brain regions are being um, activated during that, but also like how are they different across these different faces and even understanding across different individuals using a technique like that is very important. And you can just learn a lot from um, using techniques like that. Mm -hmm. And I would love to, you know, continue hearing about your research initiatives and all the great things you can do with master with mouse tracker. But unfortunately we're getting to the end of our episode. So our last question that we've been asking all of our guests is what do you think is the most interesting thing about human behavior? Hmm. Uh, I would say that the most interesting aspect of human behavior to me is the, the complexity of it and the, although a lot of behavioral scientists would say this sort of the, the opposite here, this is their, their most hated element, but the effect sizes that you get in the behavioral sciences are small. And that makes it challenging as compared to, say, physics or other kinds of STEM fields. Uh, and that makes it challenging, but also makes it really fascinating because what it means is that you're dealing with, as we know the brain is, one of the most complex dynamical systems that we know of, right? And so, of course, behavior is always multiply determined. And one of the things that drew me to social neuroscience as a field sort of almost meta-scientifically or an element that I just really like about the science of it is that you have these multiple levels of analysis that are always interacting. You have the socio-cultural, which is always changing dynamic over time, and you have biological processes changing over time. The brain is highly plastic, and you have to understand these multiple levels of analysis simultaneously. It's not just a strictly linear reductionist science. And I think the same goes for just thinking about behavior. There's obviously any behavior as simple as it is a simple reaction time or a mouse trajectory is multiply determined by so many different factors and trying to figure that out and all the complexity uh, involved, I think is just really fascinating. So it's, it's very challenging, difficult to pin down and it can make, you know, it can make everything a little bit of a drag for a while because it's hard to nail effects unlike other things where it's just really striking in other STEM fields. But that's what makes it so interesting. This is behavior is what we're all about, obviously. That is what makes, that is the human experience. And so I think dealing with the complexity head on is what's most exciting and interesting about behavior. What's behind behavior, behind the behavior. I love it. Behind the behavior, perfect. We did not ask him to say that, to clarify. Um, but no, I agree. I understanding behavior it's it's a challenge but i'm glad that so many people are interested in in taking on this challenge you know and that we're you know doing it kind of together separately but you know together as a whole um but mm -hmm. thank you so much dr freeman for taking the time and for talking with us today this was so much fun and uh i hope our listeners really enjoyed it likewise thank you so much for having me yeah absolutely for more information on Dr. Freeman and the BYB podcast, be sure to follow us on Twitter at the BYB podcast. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe.